Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Hi, I'm Emily, and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, your sermon covered Genesis 11, verse 10 through 12, verse 3. Genesis 11, verse 26 seems to suggest that Abram is the oldest son of Terah. However, Genesis 11, verse 32 states that Terah was 70 years old when he had his first child and died at 205 years old, which would make his oldest son 135. But in Genesis 12, verse 4, it says that Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Is there an explanation for this age discrepancy? I think it's a... a Good question. A question that actually came up from some people on Sunday after the sermon. So there were other people doing math uh, about the, how these dates don't sort seem to correspond to one another and Tara's age particularly. Something I bumped up on a little bit in preparation as well. And so I looked at a number of different commentators and how a number of different individuals have sorted through these discrepancies in age. There's a, a couple of different solutions we could look at, but I think the one that's most persuasive is when we look at Hebrew genealogies in general, both of those that are in the canon of the Old Testament and those from other sources, as well as other genealogies beyond even just Hebrew genealogies in the ancient Near East. While frequently the firstborn child is the one who is named in the genealogy, sometimes uh, the most significant person in the family, the most theologically significant in the case of the Bible or the most significant for other reasons in secular ancient Near Eastern genealogies, skips the line and is the person who's fronted. So they're trying to emphasize who is the most significant person in this family. So when we get to chapter 11, verse 26, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. It may be the case that one of those brothers, Nahor or Haran, is born before Abram, but because Abram is going to be the most significant member of that three-brother grouping, he is fronted among those three brothers. I think something that lends a little bit of credibility also to that perspective is that while it would probably be more likely that if this was in the middle of a genealogy, in other words, if of these nine, this nine-generation genealogy Abram was listed as the firstborn in the fourth generation of this genealogy, and then you were to go down, you should probably expect that in the middle of the genealogy, it's the firstborns who are being named. But when you come to the end of a genealogy, it's stopping there because you've landed on some significant theological figure. And so then fronting that person who is going to be more significant to the narrative is something that would make sense. Uh, within the literary context of the genealogy itself. So I think what we most likely have is that Abram is not Terah's first son, uh, Nahor or Haran is, and that reconciles for us the seeming discrepancy in the age and timeline that we're given for from when Terah has his son at the age of 70 to when Terah dies and then Abram's corresponding age. I don't think that there needs to be any issue that that creates in the text if we understand that Abram is probably not uh, Terah's firstborn. How are Christians today recipients of the blessings to Abram? Weren't those blessings given to the people of Israel? You know, those blessings uh, are originally given to the family that's going to come from Abram, which we're going to find out through the rest of the book of Genesis and then beyond into Exodus is going to grow into a family that grows into a nation. This nation is going to become the people of Israel. And yet the blessings are not for Israel only. We read there in Genesis 12 that through you, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the promises that are given to Abram 
are spiritual promises that are realized by faith. We're going to find out later that Abram believes God and God counts Abram's belief to him as righteousness. And that therefore in the New Testament, we're actually told that those who believe in God's saving promises are joined to Abraham's family through faith so that we become uh, children of Abraham. In fact, we read in in the book of Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul writing there in chapter 3, verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so, in other words, it's not your genealogical connection or your ethnic connection to Abraham as being a Israelite, as being a Jew. It's your connection by faith to believing in the promises that God gave to Abraham, and therefore you are a descendant, a faith descendant of Abraham, and therefore a recipient of those same promises. In the calling of Abram, God gives Abram a specific set of instructions to go to the land he will be shown. Christians today will frequently say things like, I think God is calling me to do blank. Does God still call believers in such specific ways? You know, I think when we look at the call on Abram's life, is really is a call to faith and obedience. And uh, we emphasized in the sermon that in the book of Joshua, we're informed that Terah and his family, and certainly by implication there, Abram and his brothers are pagan idol worshipers at the time in which God calls Abram while he's still la- living in the land of Ur. So really it's a call to faith. And we see that reflected in the book of Hebrews, that in this listing of the great men and women of the faith, Abram's faith is being called out for the way that he responds to God's call. So really it's it's a call to faith that God is presenting to Abram that is manifest in some particular acts of obedience. In a similar way, Uh, Everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is responding to the call of God to to believe in in the saving truth of the gospel. And so we all, in coming to faith, respond in submission, in faith, and in obedience to the call of God. That is a different kind of call than the call that Christians frequently refer to in common vernacular or parlance where they'll say things like, I think that God's calling me to go take this job or that God's calling me to marry this person. Well, that's a very different kind of call, so to speak. That's a a call that is really about making decisions. I think that God would want me to make this decision or that God would want me to go and do this, this particular thing. We need to be careful when we use language like that because we then kind of co-opt God's authority in our decision-making process. And what I mean by that is if somebody says to you, I think that God is calling me to go take this job, or I think that God is calling me to marry this person, that way of framing the conversation discourages any ability to give wise counsel to somebody because they've essentially said, God's telling me to do this, so if I don't do it, it would be disobedience to what God would have for me. Now, What if, as a brother or sister in Christ, I have significant reservations about the marriage that this person is about to enter into? My ability to speak into that person's life is now seemingly, by the way that they framed that whole conversation, denying what God would have them to do. In reality, when we use God like that, we don't have the ability to authoritatively say that God would want us to do this, that, or the other kind of decision. Instead, when we want to find out what God's revealed will is for our lives, we find it in propositional truths in the New Testament, such as when Paul says to the believers in Thessalonica, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Well, that's unambiguous. That's clear. I can pursue that and figure out, okay, what does sanctification look like in my life? When I try to 
use God's authority as a justification for my own subjective decisions in life, who I marry, what job I take, what place I move to. Well, I, that's that's speaking of the call of God in a way that the Bible does not refer to. We need to be careful when we do that. That can lead to all kinds of dangerous places for us. God's call to Abram required Abram to give up things that he loved. Does God's call in our life always require us to give up things we love when we place our faith in him? You know, when we think about what it means to respond to the call of faith, there is this giving up process that goes along with that. So in the New Testament, Christ refers to those who will follow him, who will be his disciples. In other words, those who will respond to his call. There'll be those who take up their cross and who follow him. We read of those who wanted to be the disciples of Christ, uh, who wanted to wait for a period of time or to go bury their dead father. And Jesus says, oh, those who do not love me more than these things are not worthy of me. We have a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he wants eternal life. Jesus tells them, you know, what you desire is good, but the thing that you need to do is you need to go sell your possessions. And the reason Jesus does that, by the way, is not because you can't have any material possessions in order to follow Jesus. It's not as though we all need to go sell everything that we have, but Jesus laid his finger directly on the heart of this young man. Jesus knows the heart of people, and he knew that for this man, the thing that this young ruler loved more than anything else was his possessions. So Jesus says to him, if you would follow me, go sell everything that you have and give them to the poor and then follow me. In other words, will you love me more than you love the thing that you are worshiping most in your life? And we read there in the Gospel of Luke that uh, the young man, the rich young ruler, he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. In other words, he wasn't willing to give those things up in order to follow Christ. If following Christ meant giving up the things that he loved, well, then he was going to love those things more. Contrast to that, to refer back to the book of Hebrews chapter 11 again, we read of Moses, that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, even though he grew up in Pharaoh's household, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So Moses responded like Abram to the call of God in faith because he desired instead the things of God more than the pleasures of Egypt. Following Christ always costs us something, but what we get in return is far more than we could ever dare to hope or ask or think. But we have to shed ourselves of the idols we worshiped before if we would come to worship Christ. Why does God promise to make Abram's name great? Wasn't it the pride of men at Babel wanting to have their name great that got them into trouble in the first place? We find at the Tower of Babel that men are giving themselves into their own desire for pride, and in doing so, they're seeking to elevate their own name in a way that explicitly defies God's commands for them. They're supposed to go out and be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. They're huddling down in one place, and they are saying, we want to stay here and to build these monuments to ourselves so that our name will be great on the earth. The narrative of Abram's life reveals to us that God is the one who gets to determine whose name is made great on the earth. In giving this promise to Abram, though, this promise is greater than just making Abram's name great for the sake of Abram's name. Instead, we're going to find that God is going to identify himself throughout the Old Testament as being the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, or as the covenant name later of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in making Abraham's name great, God is making his own name great on the earth, and it's going to culminate, the family of Abraham, the blessings given to Abraham, are going to culminate in this coming seed of the woman who was promised in Genesis 3.15, Jesus Christ, 
who is going to be the one who we're going to read in Philippians chapter 2, at his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, his name is going to be exalted above every other name. So in making this family of Abram great, in exalting and making Abraham's name great on the earth, God is making his own name great through through this man who doesn't seem to have anything to offer, can't have children, by making him into a great nation, God is going to miraculously demonstrate the greatness of his own greater name. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.